and welcome to another episode of the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. This is podcast number 155. And today I'm very excited to talk to Dr. Louis Puentendura. He is going to be one of the speakers at the upcoming ISPI clinical conference, Every Joint Has a Brain, which is from June 19th to the 21st in Minneapolis. Last week, I interviewed Dr. Adrian Lowe, and again, I'm not just saying this because I'm interviewing someone involved with the conference. I went last year, and it was a great conference, actually one of the, my favorite conferences I've ever been to. Um, it was organized. The information was great, and this year looks to be the same. Great information, great lineup of speakers, um, and so today in this podcast, we're going to be talking with Dr. Puente Dora. He received his physical therapy degree and completed a graduate diploma in manipulative therapy in Melbourne, Australia. He has been involved in orthopedic manual therapy for over 33 years and has lectured and presented seminars on various approaches to manipulative therapy. He is currently an associate professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas entry-level DPT program, where he teaches anatomy, orthopedic principles, orthopedic rehabilitation and spine, and diagnostic imaging. Prior to this, he worked in outpatient orthopedic settings with a focus on spinal conditions for over 24 years. He has completed his first his post-professional DPT at Northern Arizona University. And in addition, he earned a PhD in physical therapy from Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He is board certified in orthopedic physical therapy, a fellow of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists, and is an ISPI certified spinal manual therapist. He has been published extensively regarding research on spinal manipulation, as well as research on pain neuroscience education. Ah, so Dr. Puentendora, thank you for being on the podcast again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Wow, what a long introduction. Well, you know, when you do a lot with your career, you have a long intro. Mine would be like two sentences. Yours is a nice big paragraph. Oh, it's just a mall. I think that's what it means. <laughs> No, no. Okay, so uh, like I said, um, today we're going to talk about uh, the ISPI Clinical Conference, and you are one of the uh, featured lecturers. You're doing a, a session um, treating the low back via the brain. So let's get right into that. Um, and, and this is something that I hear a lot talking with patients or even talking with other physical therapists, or you may hear, I may see this on social media. And when you say, oh, I'm going to be treating the back via the brain, does this mean that we're just going to talk away the pain versus actually mm -hmm. doing something manual or doing something physical or exercise? Is it just talk therapy? No, no, it's not just foot and talk therapy, of course. Um, it's one of the misconceptions about therapy and science education or TNE that, you know, what we do is basically just talk to people um, and do nothing else. Um, and that's, that's missing the whole point because we're physical therapists and we can't um, eliminate the physical part of us. Um, you know, exercise, modalities, manual therapy, they're all interventions that we provide as physical therapists. And um, the whole point really is to provide them within the context of a therapeutic neuroscience education background. And in this talk that I'm going to be giving on treating the low back pain, low back pain via the brain, 
I'm going to be reviewing um, what we know about back pain. And of course, you know, the hot topic uh, over the last 10 years has really been that our profession has made these great strides to basically identify a better approach to managing patients with spine pain. And a lot of it, you know, was based upon knowledge, really uh, clinical experience, really, that not all patients with back pain were the same. Um, and um, some would do much better when you did manual therapy, where others would do much better when you did exercise or traction. And there were some that were very easy to treat and responded very well to manual interventions or whatever you did. And there were others that uh, required lots of coaching and exercise to regain their functional ability. And um, what came out of that basically was this realization from the profession that subgrouping patients was the most effective way to manage these patients um, because they would benefit from specific uh, interventions. And of course, that has led us to you know the back pain subgroups. You know, the, there are these four uh, proposed subgroups for back pain. Uh, and one of the ones that appears to have been very well defined by clinical research evidence is the manipulation group. And it is that, that's the group that responds best to a combination of thrust joint manipulation and exercise. And so with this subgrouping sub, uh, sub that we do in the classification system, the objective uh, is to evaluate our patient and then try to appoint, appoint them into one of these four uh, groups that are based on their clinical presentation. And then once that's achieved, you then provide the intervention that's, um, that's described as being the most beneficial to patients within that subgroup. But there's one thing that's been missing from this, and that's basically um, that we need to be sure that our patient has an input problem. In other words, that they have a tissue and not a pain problem. We must never forget that uh, pain is produced by the brain, and altering information that the brain perceives can potentially alter threat and thereby alter the pain experience. So I guess another way of saying this is that the subgrouping or the classification-based approach is really an example of bottom-up therapy because we're directing our treatment intervention to the tissues. So in the patient who has um, signs that they may belong in the, in the manipulation group, um, you know, we suspect that there's an issue with their lumbar spine uh, and there's a problem within the tissues there. And then the manipulative technique and the exercises is going to um, change the input and therefore, you know, stop the input into the system and calm the pain down. But what about when your patient has a pain problem rather than a tissue problem? Um, it would make very little sense just to treat the patient's tissues within that subgrouping approach when they have a pain problem. And so um, we would argue that a top-down approach is what would be indicated here. And here we mean, of course, the pain neuroscience education approach which attempts to engage the brain and bring about a decrease in pain and an increase in the function. And um, TNE, or Therapeutic Neuroscience Education, has really now been fairly well described as a, a very good and growing evidence that um, it can significantly help decrease pain, it can increase function, provide better outcomes in patients with uh, chronic musculoskeletal dysfunction. But um, I really want to talk about how we can combine the two manual therapy to treat low back pain but also use a top-down approach by engaging the brain. Um, and one of, the, one of the things that helps us understand how we can do this is by discussing how, um, how manual therapy might actually work. One of the uh, you know, really exciting researchers, I think, is a guy from, um, from Florida, Joel Bielowski. And uh, he and his co-authors have done quite a lot of work on the proposed mechanisms of manual therapy. Um, and they've 
got this seminal paper that appeared in manual therapy uh, where they provided a detailed and elaborate model that um, can be broken down into one of three mechanisms uh, for manual therapy, a mechanical, a neurophysiological, and or a placebo effect. And um, in that paper, they've got this beautiful flow diagram of proposed mechanisms of manual therapy. You know, at first glance, that model looks, looks extremely complicated and very difficult to follow. But what the model actually suggests is that um, a transient mechanical stimulus to the tissues, which is what manipulation is, can produce a chain of local mechanical effects and neurophysiological effects that are mediated through the peripheral nervous system, spinal cord, and then higher centers. Um, but of course, the other important thing is to remember that um, you're also engaging the expectation of benefit and the brain, and um, that's an important part of it that, that they kind of missed out. You remember that you know any goal in therapy is going to be, especially you know patients that we see with back pain, it's going to be pain relief. And um, in order to appreciate how manual therapy might work to modulate or reduce a patient's pain, we really need to have a good understanding of the current science of pain neurobiology. And you know perhaps the most important thing to understand is that pain is not an input. Um, that the uh, the outdated Descartes model of pain being a single sense from the periphery of the brain is essentially incorrect. Um, we have to remember that nerve endings and peripheral nerves really only convey electrical messages that convey action potentials to the spinal cord and to the brain. But these messages need to be perceived or interpreted by the brain as a threat before they can be assigned any value, such as pain. And Jerome um, Mosley certainly has done a lot of research on pain, and we have as well. Um, but I really like his definition of pain as being a multiple system output, which is activated or constructed by an individual's specific pain neuromatrix. So with that in mind, um, one of the things that you uh, have to figure out is, you know, when um, you view pain as an output from the brain, um, that it's in response to the electrical stimulus, the brain's going to undertake this complex reasonable me reasoning mechanism it's going to be based upon experience, context, the environment, and many other considerations before it assigns that any kind of meaning to that input. Um, and you can also look at the way pain works as being essentially one of um, uh, one of three mechanisms, and we can classify um, the the pain into these three mechanisms by breaking it up into input, which is basically the nociceptive tissue based or peripheral neurogenic input into the system, processing, which happens in the brain, of course, or the central mechanisms, and then output. And this is the homeostatic mechanisms. And a lot of this comes from the mature organism model that Louis Gifford um, provided for us years and years ago. Um, I'm, actually, I'm actually reading um, Louis Gifford's books, Aches and Pains, and that is just an amazing read. Uh, a set of three books written in Louis Gifford's style, um, which is so easy to read. And man, that, that guy was just so way ahead of his time. And we really, we really should be thankful for um, you know, what he's done for us. So, um, you still with me, Karen? Yeah, yeah, I'm just, I am with you. I am I'm taking it all in and I think it's, you know, you mentioned Louis Gifford's uh, books and, and last night when, as I was on Twitter, uh, one of our new graduates in PT, TJ uh, Janicki, was reading uh, Louis Gifford's last night. So I think it's, and, and I believe he's 
kind of watching us now on Periscope. So I think it's interesting that you brought that up because I just saw it last night. And, and I agree. I think everybody should read, the, read, those, read his work. Mm -hmm. I, just, I just heard this feedback all of a sudden. I thought, oh, I'm not being disconnected or something. No, 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 no. no I'm with you. I'm with you. Well, let me continue then, because we were talking about the three mechanisms, input, processing, and output. And I think this is the, um, the important thing to, to consider and to understand how, you know, you need to do a combination of manual therapy and education. And then, you know, using one approach over the other or just one only um, is not going to work in most cases. Um, it's important that we realize that in anybody who has a, has an ongoing pain state, that all three mechanisms are going to be at play. You know, we often say that people who have chronic pain or have been in pain for a long time have a processing problem and input doesn't matter anymore. Uh, well, that's not exactly true. There's still some input. It may not be as important uh, to the ongoing pain state, but there's still input and there's still an opportunity to provide novel input that will change the output, so to speak. And that's where I think um, we as clinicians can, you know, get, use our hands to, to provide that um, that novel input to change the processing and therefore change the output of the brain and that change the output of the pain experience. So if you think about how manual therapy um, could result in, uh, in this altered processing and output, um, the, that's the, the, the question that you know, I'd like to discuss now and that's basically the, the proposed mechanisms of manual therapy that if we could superimpose the pain mechanisms model, um, we'd see that the mechanical effects uh, may correspond primarily with an input-driven response. The neurophysiological effects could correspond with both the input and output-driven responses. And then the placebo effects could correspond primarily with a processing-driven response. So we could superimpose those over those three mechanisms that Bielowski was talking about as a mechanism of manual therapy. And so in order to consider how manual therapy might lead to a change in the processing of pain, we first really need to consider the tissues that could be providing the nociceptive input for a pain experience. Now, someone who has back pain, there's really no shortage of possible tissue sources. There's things like intervertebral discs, there's like glycosyl joints and ligaments and muscles. And we could argue that there could be a disruption of the normal biomechanics surrounding the tissues, thereby deforming nerve endings and driving the neural input. If we take the example of a patient with back pain, we could argue that back pain driven by input from the tissues could lead to a loss of the normal pain-free range of motion. Uh, the surrounding muscle spasm, persistent symptoms, you could get fibrous adhesions developing within and around the glycopopsial joints. That sounds like a pretty nasty thing going on there, but the idea would be that if we could impart a thrust joint manipulation, we could cause a sudden and rapid separation of the glycopopsial joints, and then the gapping could loosen or breaking up any adhesions so that the joint can move more freely, more normally, and hopefully without as much pain. Uh, but how might the processing of, uh, processing of pain have been changed? If you look only at the input mechanisms, we can argue that the manipulation changed the status of the tissues, which may have been the dominant pain mechanism, no susceptible input. And then that sudden change of the mechanics around the joints could lead to a modulation of that pain experience and allow the patient to work on restoration of normal functioning through exercise. And there's certainly plenty of evidence research evidence on the biomechanical effects of high-velocity low amplitude manipulation thrust techniques. And um, we do know that um, there is gapping of zygoprophyseal joint shown on MRIs. There's improved jaw, joint, jaw opening, TMJ, 
um, following Atlanta occipital manipulation. There's a study of, uh, of Spain, which was really interesting. You see increased active range of motion following manipulation in subjects with mechanical neck pain, but also in asymptomatic subjects. Um, there's lots of research out there, but if you were to sort of distill it all down, um, the evidence shows that manual theoretical manipulation does cause vertebral movement, it causes gap in the facet joints, it then causes increased invertebral motion, but the changes observed are not long-lasting. They're not site or level specific, and there are no observed changes in spinal alignment or vertebral position. And because of that, it's led lots of researchers to think that the biomechanical effects can't be the only reason for the clinical benefits of um, manipulation. And so an alternative thought is to think that, you know, the experience of pain is much more complex. Um, it involves mechanisms beyond the simple most receptive input from the tissues. And so there's going to be much more involved in the process. Um, you see also that um, environment has a big difference, big, bigger effect on whether someone will experience uh, or develop symptoms. Um, there's, just, there's studies that show that patients who sustain uh, tissue damage, for example, whiplash in, in an adrenosensitive or stressful environment, will have a seven to eight times higher chance of developing chronic, chronic pain. And so those findings suggest that um, you know the experience, the the, the, the uh, sort of this experience surrounding a tissue injury uh, can have a significant effect on uh, whether that pain will have a, a positive or a negative impact. And there's lots of things that can you know add to um, the stress. And make a patient, you know, feel, uh, you know, a greater, greater amount of pain. We often talk about how the environment can have this negative impact on processing the pain, but we should also acknowledge that it can have a positive impact. And that's where we come in as physical therapists. You know, if you think about the influence that a busy waiting room, you know, clinic full of patients and therapists that are busy exercising, the privacy of the treatment area, the lighting, the sound, the warmth of the treatment room, the warmth and softness of the therapist's hands on the patient's back. These are all things that can have a positive impact on environmental factors that can change the context of an input. And they can contribute to the mechanisms of modulating pain through manual therapy. We could also talk about you know, peripheral neurogenic input and how manipulation does have, have this uh, ability to change the, the chemical environment. Um, and you know, one of the, there's lots of evidence that um, manipulation has an effect on blood chemistry. Uh, this includes an observation of decreased cytokines, which are inflammatory mediators, but uh, there's no change in substance P in normal subjects. There's one study. There's another study that looked at uh, an increase in B endorphins in subjects that had chronic low back pain, as well as asymptomatic subjects following manipulation. Uh, there's plenty of studies out there. One that really interests me is one um, that showed that there's a release of cannabinoids in healthy subjects following manipulation when compared to a sham procedure. So, you know, I guess that might explain the high that some people feel uh, following manipulation. But what the evidence shows is that manual therapy and manipulation does cause an improvement in that local chemistry. It decreases pro-inflammatory uh, cytokines and increase local endorphins. And all the changes would suggest that some improvement in the local chemistry, and that could assist in um, changing the signaling, reducing the signaling, that produces the maintenance uh, or maintains that pain experience. But again, just as with um, the biomechanical effects, the changes that are observed don't appear to last, last very long. Um, they're systemic in nature. In other words, they're not specific to the area or the site in which they might be involved in the pain experience. And so again, 
that's led to this um, many researchers to think that the biomechanical effects and the biochemical effects can't be the only reason. And if you continue on down this road, you realize that um, you know all these effects of manual therapy um, tend to be from you know the tissues on up, this bottom-up type approach. There's also um, lots of research that shows that there are brain change mechanisms. There are central mechanisms that occur um, following manipulation. Um, there's a lot of work done by La Tremolier and Wolf on central sensitization. And um, there have been some studies using um, EMG and reflex activity that show manipulation does have uh, an effect on spinal cord signaling. But again, um, the other thing to think about here is that you know, these changes are again, you know, transient in nature, and um, therefore, you know, uh, only producing a very you know, sort of um, short-lived short, um, kind of response. One of the things that we need to remember is that if we really want to understand central processing and output mechanisms, um, you know, we really um, need to think about it as being a survival uh, mechanism. But ultimately, when the brain receives input from the periphery uh, in response to a strong enough stimulus, it really just needs to answer a survival question about how dangerous is this really. And it uses this complex reasoning process, which includes, includes things like past experiences, beliefs, and knowledge about what the stimulus might mean, a body image, and a host of many other things. And the brain may actually conclude that it's not that dangerous, and if that's a case, and descending inhibitory influences and decrease the signal and no pain is experienced. If, on the other hand, it concludes that it's more dangerous, it may arrange for descending excitatory influences in order to receive more signal. And here, um, there's the opportunity to influence how the brain might send or output inhibitory rather than excitatory influences. And so manual therapy can be effective at this point as well in order to change these things. And uh, one of the final things that I'm going to talk about at that conference is going to be the placebo effects, the expectation of benefits. Um, and there's a lot of work done on the placebo mechanisms by Joel Bielowski from the University of Florida. And I've also been reading a recent paper that um, Tim Finn sent me about placebo from an Italian researcher, which is just brilliant. And one of the things to remember is that placebo is not nothing. And yet we often use the term synonymously you know, when Someone having had a, a control group in a research project who received no treatment, and we call them a placebo uh, group or a sham group, and we use those terms synonymously. But that's not what placebo means. Placebo means an expectation of benefit. So it's a, you know, um, it's thinking that something is going to be good for you. And placebo effects are really uh, quite complex. And not as simple as you think, and you know, they're certainly worth a, long, a much longer discussion than we have time to discuss right now. But um, consider these interesting findings that um, negative expectation of a normally effective treatment intervention can certainly render it ineffective. There was a newspaper article in 2011 that showed that negative experiences can stop painkillers from working. And this is where um, patients were told the medication they were receiving, which was really strong painkillers like codeine, um, uh, morphine, derivatives, those kinds of things. Um, and they were given these tablets but told that they were just you know, um, mild pain relievers like Tylenol and actually had a negative effect and rendered the, the strong painkilling effects ineffective. And the opposite side is also true where positive expectation 
of a normally ineffective treatment can render it effectively effective. And um, here's a you know a great sort of research that, that um, Amy and I have done looking at um, systematic review of placebo surgeries. And this is where you know people believe that they've had surgery um, done and have a, a significant response and feel a lot better, even though no surgery was actually done. So the, the positive expectation is benefit um, is a very is a really powerful influence. And it's really quite interesting that it was one of the uh, most powerful predictors or the strongest predictors of success with spinal manipulation in patients with neck pain in that clinical prediction rule that I developed a few years back. So um, if patients thought that having um, their neck manipulated would be helpful, they were more likely to demonstrate success than those who did not know, those with neutral expectation, or those who thought it would not really help them, the negative expectation. And so... This is where we as, as you know, um, expert clinicians, if you like, can, ha can enhance positive expectations in their patients. And I think that a lot of seasoned clinicians or expert clinicians really do um, enhance the positive expectations of their patients. And they do it without really noticing. I think that it's almost a subconscious uh, effort for them. They don't really know that they're doing it, but they do. Um, and it's all about, you know, um, how they treat and how they relate to the patient. So if you bring it all together and, you know, imagine for a minute the mature organism model from uh, Louis Gifford where there's input, the environment, um, sampling, going into the nervous system, the brain processing, and then the output, the action response, of which pain is one of the outputs, all right? Um, then ultimately how manual therapy intervention might work. Depends on what patients, you know, uh, what pain mechanisms are, are, are working in that particular patient that you are working with. And that might explain why uh, manual therapy can work so well and so quickly in some patients and have little or no effect in other patients. And it really emphasizes the importance of subgrouping our patients and targeting specific therapeutic interventions to specific subgroups. But also it's considered that which pain mechanism might be dominant in the clinical picture. So we can refine the manual therapy intervention to suit that specific patient. But I could sort of finish off here, if you like, with a, uh, a, just a two, two simple examples of how we might use uh, understanding the operant pain mechanism with the subgrouping effect. And you may have a patient with acute low back pain. Let's say that it's less than 16 days since the onset of their symptoms. And the pain is localized with no spread into their lower extremities, uh, no pain below the knee. In such a patient, you could argue that there is input from the tissues and the joints, ligaments, muscles, and that may dominate the pain mechanism. But we should always remember that all three mechanisms are going to be in play. So a treatment that focuses on the tissues at fault would make sense, as this will reduce the input into the system and reduce pain. And the treatment might include manual therapy and manipulation followed by exercise, to restore the physical health and movement properties of the tissues. We could also include patient education by explaining to the patient that the pain uh, problem is a minor one and it will be easy to treat. This is where we can use the power of placebo by promoting positive expectation. And that will also calm the sensitivity of the nervous system and avoid progression of the problem to, to more, a more chronic one. The, the alternative example would be a patient with chronic back pain. Let's say this patient has three years uh, of onset following a motor vehicle accident and symptoms are spread into bilateral lower extremities. It's gone up into the upper back region. There's now tension headaches, 
stress makes the pain worse. And the patient is also being given a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome. Now, we would argue that in such a patient, input from the tissues, the joints, the ligaments, and muscles, is really no longer needed for the experience of pain. So it's no longer the driver, and, and really, if you focus on restoring the physical health and the biomechanics of the tissues, that would make very little sense. You probably wouldn't go anywhere, and you'd be frustrating yourself trying to treat that kind of uh, approach. And you see that, in this case, the treatment um, that focuses on helping the patient understand pain and on providing strategies to manage the pain would be much more effective. And that treatment could include um, explaining the neurobiology of pain to the patient, helping them understand why they continue to have problems after such a long time. That might well include one or two sessions of manual therapy and manipulation followed by exercise as a novel input to drive a change in processing and hopefully lead to a better output by improved muscle activation uh, without igniting the pain matrix. Now, managing this kind of patient is not going to be simple, um, but certainly having a deeper understanding of the pain science will help that clinician to provide appropriate interventions that are helpful for the patient. That kind of, in a nutshell, explains you know, what we're talking about here about the combination of um, a bottom-up approach with a top-down approach. That if you do both, you'll be much more effective in managing patients with chronic pain and also patients with, with uh, acute pain. And how would you, so uh, that was wonderful, by the way, and, and, and I will probably be taking this uh, your session when I uh, am in Minneapolis for the conference. Um, oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what? We're going to go into a lot more about how, um, how therapists can enhance positive expectations for manual therapy cool. and also how, how to diminish the negative ones. And how, let's say, you know, you, the two examples you gave I thought were great. And, and I think that takes into account a, a good amount of, of patients that physical therapists may see, especially with low back pain. You know, they're obviously those acute or those very sort of long-term chronic pain patients. But what, what do you say to a patient? Let's say a patient comes in and they say, oh, I threw my back out. Uh, mm -hmm. I threw my back out. Uh, normally, I know uh, I I do this little cracking and it pops everything back into place. So, how mm -hmm. do you speak to the person who feels that manipulation is putting everything back into place versus all of the stuff that you had just mentioned? So, how can you explain that uh, to the patient? Well, you were, yeah, that's opening up a beautiful can of worms, really. Um, because one of the things that the patient is telling you by saying that, you know, oh, I get my back popped and it puts everything back in and I feel better, is that they're, they're telling you they have a positive expectation that manual therapy is going to help them, mm. but only for a little bit. Mm. And so you can use that in many, you could use that as, as part of your treatment. I would definitely be, you know, telling the whole pain story, you know, why do you hurt the whole, you know, um, pain neuroscience education approach about how pain actually works. And um, I'd spend some time on the biomechanics of the spine and letting them know that manipulation does, you know, have a mechanical effect um, at that level, but it doesn't really change, you know, the, the joints or put joints back in uh, that are out. Um, but what it probably does is just mobilize or move joints that are not moving all that well. Um, and then I might actually start talking about how 
especially you know using the little metaphor about little people in your head, the homunculus, and um, letting people know that when they've had pain in their back and continually have pain in their back, that the area of the back in their in their brain is out of focus, and that one of the things that manual therapy and then exercise can do is put the back back into the brain, so to speak, so that it can sharpen the homunculus and provide a better focus, and, and then that will reduce the pain. And you know, I think one of the things that patients like that always want to hear is, you know, gosh, what can I do to stop feeling this pain, or to, you know, not have to have this done to me every every so often. And one of the things that's powerful is if you can tell patients is that, yeah, we can do the manual therapy to get you, you know, feeling better and get you moving better, and you certainly feel that response whenever you had that done before. But here's the important part: the best way to keep it feeling that way is with exercise. And that's where we can progress on to exercise activities and remind patients that it isn't just manual therapy, but it has to be manual therapy plus exercise. And it isn't just manual therapy plus exercise. It's got to be manual therapy plus exercise plus education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perfect. Makes perfect sense. And, you know, I think it's also important to note that all of that may not happen with one session. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's not like you, they come in and you do all this in one session and then they leave. Like this, you know, it, it does take, especially for people who have very hard set beliefs uh, surrounding their pain, that it takes time. And, you know, I was, oh, I was saying to uh, Adrian last week that, you know, I had a patient with who she, she was a young girl but she and her parents had very hard set beliefs and the doctor had very hard set beliefs. And, you know, long story short, uh, I saw her a couple of times, never saw her again because they were, yeah, we, uh, we were working, you know, through some, some novel exercise and movement and pain education, but they just were not um, interested. And yeah. So you know, it's important to note that that can happen too. Yeah, um, so that's always a that's, that's always a tough thing with these patients, and that's figuring out you know how you know, whether you could actually get them to shift. Yeah. And you know, Adrian talked about the the, um, the relative brick wall that might be between you and your patient, and you know how big a barrier to change there is. Yeah. You know, and some people the the barrier that's up is is too high, and all we can do just chip away with it with our education. You know, give them little pearls, little bits of information. Yeah. And hope that those little those those little um bits of information are little chinks in the uh, in the wall that produce cracks and that you know hopefully that those hard beliefs can come crumbling down. Mm -hmm. Um and you know when when parent, when patients experience, you know, improvement when they when they experience progress where they have never had before that's really all that, that they need to actually start to you know, break down those beliefs. You know, I I had a patient in um, Arizona who had a frozen shoulder, and she's actually a physical therapist and an educator in physical therapy. And we, I met, we went on the plane when we were going to CSM uh, just this year, and she was telling me about her frozen shoulder. And so, you know, I, I while we're there in the in the uh, airport I was checking out her shoulder and talking to her and I told her that you know a lot of this is really just you know the the, the 
the frozen shoulder is, is pretty well described, but you know, the pain that you have from a frozen shoulder doesn't have to be as bad as it back. You just think about, you know, um, how dangerous this problem in the shoulder is and how dangerous it is really. You really need to have the pain that you have um, when there really isn't that much of a threat going on with the shoulder. If you just consider it to be less of a threat and less of a problem, um, you know, can you manage to move your arm and use your arm as much as possible without it contributing to pain? And all I did was just plant the seed, the little bug that she didn't need to have the pain that she was having. And it's interesting, I spoke to her about a week ago about another matter, and she just reminded me of that and said, you know, ever since you told me that, I've been thinking more about, you know, how I didn't need to have that pain. And you wouldn't believe it, but my shoulder is so much better now. Um, now, it could be that she's just progressed through the typical stages of uh, a frozen shoulder and she's finally thawed out. But um, she really you know, felt that it was a turning point to hear that information that she didn't need to experience the pain she was having. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think it, when we're working with patients and, and it, using the biopsychosocial approach versus the biomedical approach and using TNE or explaining pain to the patient, I think once, you know, coming from, I can kind of come from the, the physical therapist point of view and the patient point of view. Um, mm -hmm. But I know that once I sort of realized that I, kind of like what you just said, I had neck pain for many, many years and I met David Butler. Um, and he, exactly what you just said to this woman, he said to me, and I can honestly say like within three weeks, 90% of my pain was, was gone. And that was like five years ago. And now I still don't really have any, like every once in a while I'll have a little flare up, but now I know that it's not that big of a deal. And so the little flare ups before that would have me out of work for a week. Now maybe I take an Advil or I move or I go do an exercise class and I feel better. So. Mm -hmm. It's, it's um, definitely, uh, a, it takes a big mindset shift to, to make this all fit together and make it all work. And, and it sounds to me like your session treating the low back pain via the brain at the conference is going to address all of that. So if anyone um, is going to be in Minneapolis from June 19th, 21st for every joint has a brain given by ISPI. Definitely uh, sign up for treating the low back via the brain. And also quickly, I want to mention that you're going to be helping out in another uh, session. So do you want to uh, tell me what other session you'll be helping out with in case people want yeah, to see you twice? Absolutely. On the the day before that, um, uh, Cesar Fernandez de la Pena, who's a good friend of mine from Spain, is coming over to talk about trigger points and, um, you know, treating trigger points. And Cesar's done a lot of work on um, myofascial trigger points and, um, you know, clinical studies showing that, you know, it can be a very effective approach. Um, there's still a lot of controversy and controversy about um, trigger points and whether they actually exist. Um, you know, there's, there are lots of researchers who really feel that if you can't dissect this, then it doesn't exist. Um, which is pretty crazy because uh, no one's ever argued that a trigger point is um, you know, 
a, a, um, a, an actual, you know, mechanical thing that you can actually see. Um, it's really a torque band. So, you know, if you dissect out a, a torque band, what's going to look like? It's going to look like muscle. It's just like normal muscle. Mm-hmm. Just, so that's really interesting. I'm getting off target here, but uh, I know that um, Caesar's um, got some great plans for that particular session. I'm really there to be sort of his wingman, so to speak, um, to be able to throw in the odd English word that he may have forgotten. Um, Caesar speaks relatively good English, uh, just like I speak relatively good Spanish. <laughs> so when I'm over there in Spain, he helps me with my Spanish, and when he, when he comes over here, I help him with his English. And I know it'll be a, a fun class. He's a, an amazing young man. Great. And, and yeah, and both of those sound really great. And for, for anyone listening who wants more information, they, go, they can go to ispinstitute.com and you can get a breakdown of all of the, there's lots of different sessions. So I asked Adrian this question. I'm going to ask you, what sessions are you looking forward to when you're not doing your sessions, which I guess would only be what, one day, two days? Um, you know, two days. I'm going to be helping um, Caesar on the Saturday and then my four-hour session on the, on the Sunday. But I guess the one that I'm looking forward to is Chris Powers. Mm. He, we had Chris come to UNLV and give a presentation, um, and he was a terrific speaker. And the things that he's doing out there in Los Angeles um, are just amazing with, with um, you know, the Viacoms, the, the biomechanical analysis. Um, it's just really, really interesting. I think Chris's talk is going to be um, one not to miss. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one also. I heard him speak at CSM this year. He's a really cool guy, lots of doing really great, great things. I'm looking forward to that one as well. And Adrian said the same thing. Um, and <laughs> yeah, go figure. Um, so we had one question from Jess Schwartz, uh, PT mm-hmm. based in New York City. Um, and she wanted me to ask you about Adrian's uh, herniated disc necklace, which I've seen before. So <laughs> I, I have seen yeah. I believe he wore it last year on the opening day of the conference. So do you have any info on the backstory on that necklace? Yes. Um, <laughs> what happened was that, you know, really on in the, in the teaching of neuroscience education, um, Adrian was often talking about how um, some of the models that we use um, in explaining pain to our patients, especially when you use biomechanical or anatomical models, can be so scary. Um, and one of the things that he's often talked about was that, you know, the model that's in just about every spine clinic or every, every physical therapy clinic, you'll see a model of a lumbar spine with this angry red pimple, this big red bulge coming off the, off the disc. And, and how we don't see that as all that threatening, but if you're a patient with back pain and you believe that you have you know, a bulging disc, and then show, someone shows you what it looks like, and it looks like, like this big, red, bloody thing, uh, it's, it can be pretty scary. And so he encouraged lots of clinicians to cut that um, herniated disc off, to cut the, the, the um, bulge, and actually send it to him um, at his... Uh, work address at ISPI, and in return, he'd send, uh, I think he was sending back $20 gift vouchers or something like that. He was sending back a little gift back you know, if people sent them these discs. And pretty soon he had enough to make, you know, I think he's got more than enough to make one necklace. I'm, I'm hoping that he'll let me wear one of the necklaces as well. But um, yeah, he made this necklace of all the, the herniated discs that people cut off and sent to him just, just for fun. And it really made a, a big difference to, you know, to 
the way that therapists thought about some of the models that they have, the anatomical models that they have sure. in their clinic. Oh, um, what Adrian's doing now is showing this picture of me because I was treating at a clinic once and there was this lumbar spine model and it actually ended at L4. The uh, L5 and the sacrum had fallen off completely and so it just ends at L4. And I, was, and I picked it up and sort of pointed it with my finger and, and someone took a picture of it. And unfortunately, Adrian got a hold of that picture. Now he, he plasts that picture all over the place. It was oh, at uh, EIM's, EIM's Minipalooza. There it was up on, on, the, on the board. And I think it's got a mention on Twitter as well. So. Oh, that's funny. Oh. Well, yeah, that's a yeah. little scary, having no sacrum. <laughs> Nothing, everything yeah. ends at L4. Ooh, that, that could that's be frightening right. for someone. Um, well, you know, I want to thank you for taking the time out on a holiday, no less. It's Memorial Day, so happy Memorial Day to, uh, to everyone. Um, but thank you so much for taking the time out on your vacay to come on and talk about uh, what you're doing at the uh, clinic, ISPI's clinical conference. Sounds awesome. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you very much. And look forward to meeting everyone at the ISPI conference. Great. And everyone, thank you so much for listening. If you want more information about the conference, again, you can go to ispinstitute.com and it's Every Joint Has a Brain. It's going to be in Minneapolis, June 19th to the 21st. So everyone, thanks for listening. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.